You're listening to teaching from the Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. our film series at the movies. We're excited to have all of our families, kids, and teenagers uh, with us today as we talk about Moana. And Moana, before I talk about Moana, I feel like I need to address the makers of Moana, which many know is Disney. And Disney is kind of like this huge, huge power in the film industry. And especially with kids' movies, I mean, Disney has been at the top of the kids' film industry for like 81 years since their first full feature film came out, uh, Snow White. Uh, So it's been a long time Disney has been on top, but not just in kids' films, but I'm talking about like, I'm talking adult films. Like, if, if you think about it, they own Lucasfilms, which means that they own Indiana Jones and they own Star Wars. They own the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which means any Marvel superhero movie that's come out in the past 10 years, Disney owns that. Uh, They own Pirates of the Caribbean. They made that one. And so Disney is kind of on top in the film industry, especially in kids. And so not only is this like an upper echelon, like a more important uh, tier of film, there's also a certain uh, niche inside of that. There's a certain set of characters from Disney that stand out even above the rest of the Disney works. And those are the Disney princesses. And I'm going to name a few of these, a few of them, I'm going to name all of them. Uh, So we're going to go through them. Uh, Snow White in 1937, uh, the first one. Then Cinderella came out in 1950. Aurora, also known as Sleeping Beauty in 1959. Ariel, also known as The Little Mermaid in 1989. Belle, uh, Beauty from Beauty and the Beast in 1991, Jasmine from Aladdin in 1992, Pocahontas in 1995, Mulan in 1998, and if you talk to a real Disney fanatic, they may tell you Mulan doesn't quite belong in the list. She's not technically a princess, and if you think it's crazy, who cares? It matters, okay? People (laughs) care. Uh, So Mulan wasn't technically a princess, but according to Disney, she is part of the Disney princess canon. So after Mulan, we had Tiana in 2009 from Princess and the Frog. We have Rapunzel, my personal favorite, in 2010 from Tangled. It's a wonderful film. Just go out and watch it. And then Merida from Brave in 2012. These are the 11 official Disney princesses. There are 11 official Disney princesses, and these are all of them. Now, I say official because there's pretty much three more that aren't technically official yet, Uh, Because in 2013, one of the most popular films I think of all time, uh, Frozen came out. Not my personal favorite, but with Frozen came Princess Anna, who everyone loves, and Queen Elsa, who everyone seems to love even more. And so these two aren't technically princesses yet, but Anna will become a princess, and depending on who you talk to, Elsa may or may not become an official Disney princess as well. Which leads us to 2016, Moana who will be also inducted into the Disney Princess Hall of Fame. So this is a character that's not just like some important character that's still culturally relevant. Even two years later, almost every kid's birthday party seems to be themed either superheroes or Moana. But this is a character that is a Disney princess, okay? Uh, She will be the 13th or the 14th, depending on if Elsa gets in. She's the fifth to have a movie title named after her, and she is either the second or third to not have a love interest. She stands on her own. 
Uh, Merida was the first. Elsa would be the second if she were inducted. And so Moana is popular, but not just because she's a Disney princess. That is part of what makes her popular, because automatically, if you're a Disney princess, you're popular. But she has a relentless attitude. I mean, she has a go get them, never give up kind of attitude. And it's really cool to root for somebody like that. She takes a less feminine role as a princess. She's not this cookie-cutter, cliche, glitter and sparkles and dresses and tiaras, uh, but she's more of a something you can feel, something you can grasp. It's, it's more tangible because we can relate to Moana. We feel like we can attain Moana, whereas with others, we might not be able to. Um, she comes from an exciting Hawaiian culture, right? This is very popular. If you've seen the movie Lilo and Stitch, that's mostly what put it over the edge, right? It's exciting. It's different. It's not cliche like a lot of the Disney princesses. Moana comes from this exciting culture. She has relatable feelings. Uh, she has a problem uh, getting along with her dad at times. Uh, her grandmother steering her in a different direction. She feels a lot of responsibility. Uh, she feels the tension of whether or not she can do whatever she's trying to do. Very relatable. And then, of course, she has her animal sidekick. And as Maui, one of the characters in the movie, says, you're wearing a dress and you have an animal sidekick, therefore you're a princess. H-E-I-H-E-I. It's a Hawaiian name, which means disturbance. Which is funny, because if you see in the movie, the guy gets in the way all the time and just completely messes up uh, Moana's uh, task. So he really is a disturbance in the movie. Uh, for a minute, I want to talk about the plot and some of the themes, but when I talk about the themes, I don't want to talk about, like, this is why this is a good movie, this is why it's wholesome, this is why it's great. I'm going to take a negative slant to this. I want to talk about Moana in a negative way that could possibly be forming our mindsets or our spiritual identities, something that maybe as young kids we can see and either explicitly think it or maybe subconsciously take in these ideas. And so we're going to go in at kind of a negative angle. Um, the plot is Tefiti is this goddess who is the greatest power ever known that could create life itself. She's an island, um, and she's this goddess that could create life itself. Now that in general, it's a representation of God, right? Nothing wrong with it. Uh, God can create life itself, all-powerful, omnipotent. Um, and also, people throughout time have been trying to steal the heart of Tefiti, and the heart of Tefiti is what gives her her power, right? And, you know, that's not even wrong, because if we look back, we can say, well, God's archangel, Lucifer, tried to take God's power. He tried to usurp his authority and become the ruler. Obviously, he got kicked out of heaven and became known as Satan. But even this isn't necessarily wrong. Um, now, there's another character named Maui. Maui was a demigod. He was the demigod of wind and sea. He was a warrior, a trickster, and a shapeshifter. And he had a magical fish hook. Now, side note, Maui continuously says if he has no magical fish hook, he has no magical power. He won't do anything without his fish hook. He won't follow Moana. He won't fight Taka. He won't do anything without his fish hook. And without his fish hook, he is not valuable. This is the mindset that Maui has. And in the end, Maui actually sacrifices his fish hook to save Moana, which is a noble, noble task. But then Tefiti gives him a new fish hook to restore his worth. So is this something that's teaching us that Maui is defined by what he has, by his possessions? 
It could be. But we look, and Maui is actually the only one and the first one to ever successfully steal the heart of Tefiti, which means Tefiti is no longer powerful, right? Tefiti is no longer omnipotent, can no longer create life. Whoever possesses that has that power. Is that saying that whoever wants to steal God's power can steal God's power? It just takes the right combination of things. But is that saying, is that saying that anyone can take God's power, especially there's another God power in the universe? Are there demigods? Are there other things that can compete with God and fight with God and potentially steal his power? When Tefiti's heart was stolen, Taka, the demon of earth and fire, was born. Taka is actually Tefiti, which we find out later in the movie. And so is that saying, after a supposedly omnipotent God gets his power stolen, does he become evil? Is that something that we are teaching through this film? Uh, Moana continuously rebels against her father's rules. Her father wants her to stay on the reef. And while he's being insensitive and completely stubborn and unrealistic, she does continuously go behind his back. She continuously rebels against him. She does things underhanded and usurps his authority. Uh, He tells her, uh, sometimes what you wish is sometimes not meant to be but she tries to form her own path, which in itself is not a bad quality to have to form your own path. But she is rebelling against her father to do it. Um, she, she decides that she's not going to let one person, even if it's her father, even if it's the chief who was her father, that she's not going to let one person decide who she's going to be. Um, she's going to decide who she is and what she's meant to be. Her grandmother did this. That's why she's the crazy village lady, as she says. Um, she decided her own path, and that's why when she dies, she reincarnates as a manta ray. And so are we teaching our kids reincarnation? And uh, Moana meets her ancestors through some weird supernatural uh, experience, and she meets her ancestors. She, she finds out that her ancestors were voyagers. They were people that went reef to reef and found island to island, inhabited everything. And these people never stopped. But her people have been on this island for as long as anybody can remember, and she was forbidden to ever leave. So Moana decides that because her, her ancestors were voyagers, that means that she has to be a voyager. So even though Moana is like trying to get away from what she was meant to be and stay on the island and, get, and be a chief, she actually falls into becoming what she was meant to be and being a voyager. Her past predicted her future. And so she was still a participant in a predetermined life path when the ocean chose her to return the heart of Tefiti. And by the way, the ocean takes on a character that's humanistic in form, which isn't bad in itself. The crazy thing is, when Moana goes out and she tries to go across the sea to find Maui and bring Maui to Tefiti and restore the heart, um, she fails a lot. She gets thrown off the boat. She falls asleep at the boat. The boat gets tipped over. She has to dive after her disturbance. Hey, hey. And if it weren't for the water, she would have failed miserably. She wasn't really equipped to finish her task. So the harsh truth of things is sometimes we can't just go get things without the proper training, the proper equipping. Sometimes things just don't work themselves out. Sometimes we have to put in more energy, more preparation. So are we teaching our kids whatever you want to do, it's going to work itself out, or are we going to teach hard work and preparation? 
Now, I say these, and these are all negative, and now everybody is all sad and stuff because Moana is a, a great children's film. Um, and it has all these crazy themes that could be pulled out negatively, but overall, Moana is a pretty positive character with some positive themes. I just want to pull out and take a minute to recognize that when we're watching films as a family, with our kids, with our teenagers, let's take a minute to find some teaching points in these films. I mean, Disney is notoriously a kids' film industry, and they make great kids' films, and they're very entertaining. But sometimes, despite the popularity of them and the greatness of the character, it's important to take a step back and talk about these things with our families and understand exactly what everything means. Hey, did you see this demigod? What does that mean to you? Do you think there are demigods here? Hey, uh, there was this god power that was a mountain. What do you think about that? Do you think anyone could steal God's power? Or do you think that was just in the movie? It's important to have these conversations with our children. It's just in the movie. You are absolutely right. Uh, So, it's important to have these conversations. But Moana does have positive characteristics, right? And my favorite, I kind of already mentioned, she is relentless. She never stops and never gives up. Moana has this task of restoring the heart of Tefiti so that everything stops dying, right? Because the creator of life lost its power, then everything is dying. And Moana wants to restore the heart to bring life back to the islands. And so Moana goes on this task. She overcomes obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Uh, she, Maui doesn't want to go with her. He puts her in a prison, and she breaks out and comes and gets him anyway. Uh, Moana never, ever stops, even when she and Maui both lost to Taka, the demon of earth and fire. And when Maui left her, she thought for about 10 seconds about giving up, and then she went right back at it and went back by herself because Moana was driven and would never stop completing the task that she knew she was given. So Moana goes out on the ocean. Um, she was actually called ocean. She overcomes obstacle after obstacle, never gives up, never backs down. In fact, she reminds me of the Apostle Paul. And I want to read in Acts chapter 14. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, uh, I want to invite you to do that in Acts chapter 14, verse 8. And Paul is with Barnabas, and he's on a missionary journey, and he is going uh, to a place called Lystra. And so we're going to read in, in verses 8 through 10, Acts chapter 14. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Um, interesting they would say that. He couldn't use his feet and he was sitting, right? Um, that's because it kind of means he was sitting in the open. He wasn't sitting in a place. He was just sitting out there. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, this man listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet! And he sprang up and began walking. There's no synagogue in Lystra. If there were a synagogue, Paul would have been in the synagogue preaching. But this man is just sitting out in the open. There's no synagogue, which means that Lystra in a Greco-Roman culture probably had either never heard of Jesus or had very, very rarely heard of Jesus. It's early Christianity, and the gospel has likely not even reached this city much, if at all. And so Paul is here preaching the gospel in no synagogue. And this man was uh, Eche Pistin Tu Sothenai. Everybody repeat after me. 
Just kidding. I say that because it's important. It's faith necessary for the purpose of saving. And when it says saving, it's this physical saving. And so Paul is saying that this man had faith enough that he could heal physically. And I think in our Western culture, in our Western world, sometimes we lose this touch with God. God is a God who, because of our faith in him, can heal us physically. And when when we think about that now, it sounds kind of distant and crazy, but it's important to know that this is the same God that we serve today. And if it be God's will, if you have enough faith, you can be physically saved along with emotionally and spiritually saved. God's power is not less now than it was then. This man's faith made him physically well. And by the way, this is probably the first time he's ever heard the gospel, right? So this man had great, great faith. This was Paul's first public miracle in Acts. His first public miracle, which is a big deal, because Paul is like royalty. He's like a Disney princess of the New Testament. Uh, Paul is a big deal, and so this is his first public miracle. It's kind of his coming out party, you might say. Uh, And then one of my favorite things I learned about this Paul looked intently at the man and saw his faith. He stared at him. And he stared at him, and then he said in a loud voice, rise up and walk. And this Greco-Roman culture would have recognized this. Because when they have heard about the coming of the gods, not God, but the gods in Greek culture, they they knew that the gods would stare at the people, look down intently, And they would come in a loud voice of thunder. This is intentionally written and intentionally understood by the people that this was a sign from the gods that they had come. And so Paul and Barnabas were actually seen as gods. They were worshipped as gods. Paul was thought to be Hermes because he was the speaker. And Barnabas was thought to be Zeus because he was old. Um, They thought that they were gods, and Paul and Barnabas continuously pleaded, no, why are you praising us? We're not gods, we're just people. Praise the the true God, praise Jesus. Don't praise me, I'm not a god. They offered sacrifices to them. They said, no, I offer sacrifices to God. And Paul and Barnabas, despite their constant pleading, barely even phased them. They continued to worship them and continued to offer sacrifices. And it's interesting because Paul comes into a city where he would have been a stranger. He comes and preaches where the gospel had probably never been heard. He comes as a stranger, becomes a hero, even a god to these people. And then Jews catch wind of it. And they come to Lystra and they don't like it. And they rile up the crowd. And they say, there's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah. And they get people angry. And at the hand of his own people, the hand of the Jews, Paul is stoned at Lystra. In fact, stoned so much they thought that he was dead, which was kind of the purpose. But they thought he was dead, and they dragged him out of the city and left him. Paul goes from a stranger to a hero to an outcast and a stoning victim. Now, miraculously, the next day, Paul gets up, and he didn't walk the other way. Paul didn't continue on his journey. Paul went back into Lystra, got Barnabas, and then they went to the next city to continue his mission, to preach the gospel. He goes to Derby, 
and they preached there. And on his way back, they didn't bypass Lystra. It's kind of a hostile place, apparently. Maybe you don't want to ever be there again. Paul comes back through Lystra and preaches more. Paul was relentless. He never gave up. No matter how many obstacles he had, no matter what was in his way, Paul knew his task, he knew his calling, and he knew God wanted him to preach the gospel. And so that's what he did. And he didn't even bypass the place that tried to kill him. He went back because he knew his mission was to preach the word of God. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28, Paul is talking about uh, to the church at Corinth, talking about false prophets. He's kind of warning against them and saying, some people only want fame. That's why they're prophets. Some people only want your money. That's why they're prophets. Um, and a lot of people brag about themselves, and I've never bragged about myself. But I'm really sorry, but I'm going to brag about myself real fast. And here's what Paul says. This is an intimidating list. He says, after he said he's had countless beatings, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. His own people flogged him as Jesus was flogged five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, this time in Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety from all the churches." Paul has been through it all, physical beatings, and he didn't give up. He's been hungry and thirsty, and he didn't stop. He's been cold and naked, and he's never stopped. No matter what was thrown Paul's way, he never stopped. And beyond that, he says, what's even more important is that he's constantly stressing out and thinking about the churches and having compassion and wondering what he can do to help them in their spiritual walks. Paul is relentless. He never gives up because he knows his task and he knows what he was called to do. So this morning I want to ask you, what have you been called to do? Is there something in your life where you feel like God's put it on your heart and, yeah, I should do this, because uh, God's called me to do it, maybe in a few months, maybe when I get things in order, maybe another time, maybe next year. Because Paul here didn't say, oh, God, uh, I might go preach again uh, after I heal from all these wounds. Uh, no, he got up the next morning and went back to the same city and came back later. Paul never stopped doing God's will. He never said no. He never said, I'll wait. He never said, maybe next time. Paul completed his task. So what is your task? What are you being called to do? What has God called you to do to further his kingdom? Maybe it's being a missionary like Paul and go and preach the word. Maybe it's something simple 
Like help out uh, some community people, some people in your community. Maybe help out some teachers at your school. Maybe help out at Castle Hills Christian Church more. I don't know what it looks like for you, but whatever it is, whatever God calls you to do, don't put it down. Don't give up. Just because the going gets tough, don't get going. Be like Moana, who turned around and went back. And be like Paul, who no matter what happened, continued to preach the gospel and fulfill his mission to further the kingdom.